Welcome to Unraveling Pink, a podcast tackling gender bias at work. I'm Annie Rogaski. For those of you who are new to listening to Unraveling Pink, welcome. Through conversations with men and women, we try to offer concrete suggestions for how we can all go into the workplace and reduce gender bias. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have been listening, you probably know that I'm trying to grow listenership. So if you've been thinking of sharing Unraveling Pink with a friend or two or ten, now's the time. And if you are enjoying it and would like to give Unraveling Pink a rating or review on your favorite platform, that would be fantastic too. Today I had the pleasure of talking with Lon Allen, who spent many years as a lawyer and now serves on boards, both nonprofit and public boards, has done a lot of work in reducing gender bias and increasing equality in the board space. Lon has seen a lot of changes over time in the legal profession and on boards and offers a unique and and different perspective than some of the other guests that we've had on the podcast uh, about this. So I hope you enjoy it. Here's Lon. Today I'm here with Lon Allen. Welcome. Thank you. Pleased to be here. It's great to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, back in the 60s, I went to Stanford Law School, practiced law for 35 years as a corporate counsel to local companies, generally an inside lawyer. And then I became a professional director and between public, private, venture-backed, nonprofit, I've served on a couple dozen boards. I've also uh, lectured in corporate governance for the Silicon Valley Directors Exchange and for the Rock Center. Great. When you went to Stanford Law School, what was the ratio of men to women, if you recall? Uh, I do recall uh, because we're planning, I hate to admit it, our 50th law school reunion. (laughs) Our class had probably the highest ratio of women in the then 75-year history of the law school, Mm. and women made up 10% of the class. Wow. So we've, we've come a long way, I guess. Is yes, it about uh, 50-50 now? It's exactly, well, at least 50-50, maybe even a few uh, more women than men nowadays. Uh-huh. Great. And you just celebrated your 50th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I tease some buddies of mine. I'm still married to the woman who put me through law school. <laughs> nice. Well, Lon, I wanted to talk with you because uh, I met you through the Silicon Valley Directors Exchange conference or events, Mm -hmm. and you were one of the people who would welcome me every time I came in. You seemed to remember me, and you would always welcome people as they came into the, the breakfast. And what I've noticed about the Silicon Valley Directors Exchange program is that I'm increasingly seeing more and more women there. And uh, recently I went to a breakfast where it looked like it was pretty close to 50-50 in the audience. But what struck me even more was that almost every question was asked by a woman, which is really rare in my experience. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your um, connection with the Silicon Valley Directors Exchange and your thoughts on how it has become so inclusive to women. Well, the, the exchange is an offshoot of the uh, Silicon Valley chapter of the NACD, National Association of Corporate Directors. 
when I joined in 03, which was the year I retired from law practice, we were a small group of maybe a dozen or so people meeting monthly. And hmm. as you know, uh, we now have more than 100. But along the way, we seceded from the NACD uh, because that was a membership organization where there was a lot of emphasis on selling members, memberships, and we were really trying to be an important part of the conversation about corporate governance here in the Valley. When we left the NACD, we affiliated with Stanford University, the Rock Center, and one of the um, tenets of the Rock Center is to really uh, try to get more women involved in corporate governance. So for example, um, we would not have a program where at least one of the four panelists was not a woman. And mm. we try, I know quotas have become a bad word, but we try to, uh, of the four panel, have two men, two women. And uh, I've just retired from the SVDX board, but, SV, but one of my legacies was to make sure that the, our own corporate board of directors was made up of 50% men and 50% women. Mm. And it was mechanically done, but that's how we had to do it, to just get it done. And our nominating committee is 50% men and 50% women because uh, we're playing catch-up ball here in terms of women's involvement uh, in uh, corporate America and women's involvement in the profession to make sure that if we were going to be a corporate governance organization, we didn't just talk the talk, but we walked the walk. And that's why at these meetings you will see uh, the the audience being, you know, about 50-50, no one has ever counted. So when women come to you and ask uh, for your advice on how they can get involved with the public company board, what advice do you tend to give them? Well, the first thing I suggest is that they uh, volunteer to serve on nonprofit boards because the director's job is identical. You are a fiduciary representing the stakeholders in a public company, the stakeholders are investors. In a nonprofit, it is the community that's served by the nonprofit, whether it's students and parents, if it's a school board, or the community, if it's an arts group. And so uh, you have to learn how to be an effective director, uh, number one. Number two, Public company directors are generally the type of people who also sit on nonprofit boards. Hmm. And so if you are adding value to a nonprofit board, uh, you might meet someone who is serving on a public company board or a venture back board who might decide that the skill set you are showing would be useful to that board. So you might make useful contacts. But in any event, whether you you make the contacts or not, you're going to quickly learn how one becomes a uh, a useful member of a corporate board because that's a that like most things in life is a skill set mm -hmm. that one needs to acquire, and you don't learn that in the business world when you're just on the management side. Even if you are presenting to the board of your company, you're on the other side of the table. Right. Yeah. When uh, you're on a board, you quickly realize what the job description is, where you're supposed to make sure that management 
of that nonprofit is serving the uh, stakeholders of that nonprofit. Anyway, that's the first advice I, I give to both men and women mm -hmm. of uh, how you prepare yourself to serve on a public company board. Great. So you have sat on, I think you said, dozens of boards. Have you seen the makeup of the boards uh, vary from all male to more of a mix between male and female? Well, the nonprofit boards have always had, for at least here in the Valley, I don't know about in the East Coast, maybe boards there uh, are more uh, male centric. Mm -hmm. But my experience on nonprofit boards here in the Valley is. You know, I never counted, but there were always men and women. There wasn't a disparity where I said, geez, uh, there are very few women on this board. And mm -hmm. I think I mentioned to you when I sat on the board of the uh, YWCA, you know, I was clearly one of the token men. <laughs> uh, in terms of the for-profit boards, when I started sitting on uh, for-profit boards 25 or 30 years ago, it was 100% male. And, and the senior management of the corporations uh, was made up almost exclusively of men. Mm -hmm. uh, that has begun to change, and I did a count before our little chat today, and of the, I guess, about a dozen for-profit boards I've sat on, uh, four of the 12 have had women on the boards, well, with, with one exception. That's. That's been a recent change mm -hmm. where I think the boards were really looking to uh, have more diversity on the, on the boards. 25 years ago, if uh, two candidates, if a, a man and a woman each had equal credentials, the man would be chosen. Mm -hmm. I think today with a lot of boards, if you have two candidates with equal credentials, uh, they would probably choose the the women just to uh, have diversity on the boards, and I think that's a very positive thing. Yeah. So, for thinking of the uh, boards that you've sat on, ranging from 100% men to majority women on some of the nonprofits, what are the different dynamics that you see? Like, do you see a value in having that kind of gender or other diversity on boards? Does it add some sort of value? Yes, I, I think it does, Annie. Any organization has to be functional, not dysfunctional. And uh, if we look at you know the political arena today, we have many examples of entities. You know, the U.S. Congress that's completely dysfunctional. And you could have boards that way uh, too. Uh, when Hewlett Packard went through its crisis, it was clear that the board was dysfunctional, where various uh, directors didn't like one another and didn't respect one another. Mm. In my experience, some of the boards that are made up of all men, it could almost be like a, a fraternity house and guys acting hot and uh, a lot of testosterone in the room. Mm. And I think having a mix of men and women, in my experience, it, it's almost like in some cases the women are bringing adult supervision to the room <laughs> and it's less of a, a fraternity house atmosphere. Also, sometimes I found if there was an issue I wanted to raise, I knew if I raised it, one of the other guys who, you know, guys are always in competition with each other, uh, there'd be a lot of pushback. And if before the meeting I spoke to one of the women directors and she raised the same point, 
there wouldn't be that oh, really? pushback. Interesting. And so in corporate boards, I mean, if you go into a meeting and you don't have your ducks lined up, you're not doing your job very well, mm -hmm. the corporation will better achieve its mission for the uh, stakeholders. Mm. You want to have a board that is as functional as possible. And if you have diversity, not just gender diversity, but all sorts of diversity, and you have people who are committed to working well together, then you optimize the chances that the board will function the way it's supposed to and that the entity, whether it's a for-profit or non-profit, will benefit from the board doing what the board is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. You used a word that I think is key, not just for corporate boards, but also for some of the the gender relationships we're seeing uh, these days, and that word was respect. How do you see respect playing into how we interact these days? I think that historically, certainly it was true with all of our society, all the religions in terms of only the men could be in the priesthood of whatever the religion, only men could be in government. Uh, when my late mother was born, women could not vote in the United States of America. We're changing the way uh, society has worked for tens of thousands, hundreds, you know, from day one. And so in some respects, the change has been enormous. I mean, 50 years ago, we set the record with 10% women in the class at Stanford mm. Law School. <laughs> and now when I'm a guest lecturer here, the classes are 50-50. Well, from a historical point of view, half a century is just a flash of time. But part of the change in the numbers is uh, for men to see women as equals in all sense. And this may sound strange, but for men to see, for men not to see women as women. Just what do you mean as, by that? As a colleague, uh -huh. as a fellow law student, mm -hmm. as a fellow employee of this company, as a fellow director, and that as a man I don't have a different relationship with you than I would with uh, someone else who was male, not mm -hmm. female. Yeah. And, and there's some people you get along with and some you don't, but it has nothing to do with gender. And so we have to take gender out of the equation just like we have to take race or ethnicity or religion out of the equation and uh, as historically that's not how society worked it is something that we have to work on and I think men especially have to work on my sense is for you know Millennials probably don't have to be as conscious of this as I do as a senior citizen because they have grown up in certainly an academic environment mm -hmm. that's happy, men and uh, women and where as many women go to law school as men do. When my wife Mary started college, there were two career paths. She could either be an elementary school teacher or a nurse. Uh, well, her true passion is theoretical physics. If Mary oh. were starting college today, mm -hmm. she would get a PhD in theoretical physics. Mm -hmm. But back in the 60s, that wasn't a choice. Yeah. That just wasn't a choice. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court, only graduated from this law school 17 years before I did. But when she graduated, Sandra Day O'Connor could not find a job as a lawyer. She 
had to take a job as a legal secretary. Mm -hmm. So I think that the millennials who are growing up where the, you know, their friends that are going to medical school or law school or whatever are as many women as men, my observations, they don't see the distinctions the way that uh, you know, guys my age in our 70s because uh, we were brought up in a, in a different society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that the millennial generation is interesting to watch and uh, I've had my own interactions just in, uh, with my coworkers and, and I've been fighting the feminist fight for a long time and I find that there's not really much of a fight to be had with them because they say, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. So I, I think we are seeing a nice shift where it, it, it becomes more common and expected to see um, people who don't necessarily look like you in your classrooms and in your jobs. For those who are older and didn't grow up um, with as much day-to-day -day diversity as the millennial generation, do you have any suggestions for how we can approach interactions between genders. I mean, we've had the, the Me Too stories come out late last year. Of course, they've been around for a long time, but there's a lot more emphasis on that now. And I'm just curious, what suggestions would you have for how men can interact with women in a way that is respectful, but also provides just as many opportunities as um, interactions with younger men? For example, you said we should treat men and women the same, which I think overcomes a lot of the, the issues that we've been hearing lately of, you know, I'm going to not interact with women at all so I don't put myself at risk. What are your thoughts on how we can approach either the mentoring relationship or just general interactions between men and women so that women don't lose out on those opportunities? Well, I think that, um, especially for men, again, my age, uh, you know, those of us, you know, in our 60s or 70s, the man has to want to see things differently from the way he saw them when he was growing up. Hmm. Why a, a man would do that, it might be if he has young daughters and he sees some of the frustrations they're dealing with or his spouse has had frustrations in the workplace I think the <clears throat> um, uh, those of us who are senior citizens, men who are senior citizens, have to want to see change. And the reality is that a lot of men don't. Mm -hmm. They like the old boys network, where you know they could go out after the board meeting, have a few drinks, and tell jokes. And, and so I don't think that there's um, some happy pill we can <laughs> give it. I I think. It has to be experiences with a, a daughter, a spouse, or in the workplace where a colleague, either as an employee or as a director, is uh, a woman and one has a positive working relationship and one realizes that so-and-so, you know, we're, we're looking for someone to be the new CEO, CFO, VP sales, and, you know, gosh darn it, this woman is the best person for the job, and so it's best for the entity to do it and to overcome the knee-jerk reaction of, uh, you know, the, the old boy network. Mm -hmm. I think the reality, uh, again, not to be pessimistic, is that 
some men will make that change and some won't. I said in another context, uh, the real change will be when my generation is no longer in a leadership position. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but I just mm -hmm. think yeah. realistically some guys just aren't prepared to change. For those that are prepared to change, if they look at the personal experiences with a daughter, a spouse, a co-worker, and if they can look at things honestly, they'd say, well, the mission is this, and we want to put the best team together to accomplish the mission, whether it's for a for-profit or a non-profit. And so it's like a friend of ours is the uh, conductor of the San Jose Chamber Orchestra. Well, the auditions are behind a curtain mm -hmm. so that she can't see the gender or the ethnicity of the person who's auditioning. She just hears how well they play the violin or the cello. And I think not just in corporate America, but that's, we sort of have to have the auditions behind the curtain mm -hmm. where you're just looking for the uh, talent. There was one lawyer who's of my generation and she sort of got around it because on her resume and everything, she just put her initials. Mm -hmm. So you yeah. couldn't tell from looking at the resume <laughs> what her gender was. Changing behavior takes time, but the starting point is for whatever motivation, a person has to want to change. You raised a few issues that I think are interesting how they interrelate. So we talked about the millennials and uh, you also talked about how uh, men of older generations either are willing to change or they're not. And what struck me about what you said is that the, the millennial generation are growing up with this experience of diversity and the older generations did not have quite that same experience and so your point I think is a really good one that it it requires change it requires a shift in in a long time of uh, experiencing something different um, which is hard to do and I was reminded of you mentioned I think your your mother couldn't vote and the suffrage movement just fascinates me that we were able to get the right to vote for women when that right could only be given by 100% men. Mm -hmm. And somehow, uh, well, it's a long story, I'm not gonna go into all the suffrage movement, but, but that change happened because a large number of men were open to that new realm um, and made that happen. And so it feels almost like we're in a similar situation now where we, I mean, we've made a lot of progress, but we still have a lot of mindsets that need to be changed. And I don't know if there is a way to do that other than what you, you mentioned of your personal experiences with your family or with your coworkers, seeing the positive that comes from women in the workplace, women on boards, or seeing the negative of not having women in the workplace or women on boards. Is there any other aspect of that dynamic of changing perspectives, particularly for the men who aren't changing yet, or for those who don't have daughters or um, female significant others, um, what would you say to them of why they should change their perspective? Well, I think for those who aren't changing their perspective for what you and I may call the right reasons. <laughs> I think some of the current movements like 
that have been brought on, especially in the last few years, by social media. I heard on National Public Radio driving to this meeting this morning about the kids from Parkland School wanting to have government, you know, ban assault-type weapons. Mm -hmm. Even though I was a former Army officer, I don't think that anybody should have assault-type weapons. You don't need that for, mm -hmm. you know, home defense or something like that. Uh, so I think that that may force a change just because of that pressure. Uh, it was the pressure of, according to National Public Radio today, a lot of corporations are no longer giving want a relationship with the NRA. Mm -hmm. So if the question is, are there things that will motivate people who, for whatever reason, don't see that this is good there may be social pressures where they will decide it's, if you will, good business mm -hmm. to do that. What you are doing is very helpful, and women's movements, uh, I always introduce at SVDX women to women uh, who are already on corporate boards because, again, for the, for the companies that aren't the, you know, the Fortune 100, most board seats are filled by referral where if mm -hmm. A woman on the board knows another woman with background. She could say, well, let's bring so-and-so on the board. But I think that social media could be, uh, from what I've seen just recently, could be a uh, fabulous catalyst mm -hmm. to bring along uh, men who might need a little extra push to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely has power. I think whether it's the corporate America thing with women or some of these other things, uh, government institutions aren't able to address those problems and so we have to work outside the mm -hmm. institutions and you know the Civil Rights Act isn't going to achieve equality for women or for any other group in the marketplace but I think that social media might really help get those who would otherwise be reluctant to change to change at least yeah. I cherish that hope mm -hmm. it's an interesting movement from where we used to be where things were much more private to uh, a lot more public pressure. So it's interesting to see the impact it has. Yeah. So I like to leave our listeners with a challenge, something that they can go into work or to a board tomorrow and put into practice that would reduce gender bias or bring us closer to equality. Is there something that you would challenge our listeners to put into place? Sure, if you are a, a male, I would challenge you to say that, you know, half the time you go on a coffee break or half the time you go grab a lunch, go with a, a woman or, uh, I learned from my late father, take a couple of them to lunch so that there is no confusion of what your agenda is, <laughs> if you yeah. will. Uh, I think I mentioned to you that uh, on birthdays, it was always my wife and I who took my secretary to lunch mm -hmm. because I didn't want my motivations to uh, be confusing. So I would say if you're a man, uh, if you are just, you know, just hanging around with the guys, go out of your way to hang around with uh, your women colleagues. Takeaway is uh, make sure that uh, you're spending time with all of your colleagues, not just your male colleagues. That's great advice and a great challenge. So hopefully our listeners will do that tomorrow. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Lon. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you for inviting me.
Absolutely. It was so interesting to hear Lon's perspectives on a variety of topics. What I found most interesting was the concept of wanting to or needing to decide to change. And I think as I reflect on conversations I've had with older men, um, that this is really something that is a different experience for the older generation, the baby boomer generation, than, for example, the Gen X generation, which is my own. Even the Gen Xers, I think we struggle a bit with having to make the decision to affect change uh, in contrast to perhaps the millennials who I do believe grew up with much more, if not exposure to acceptance of uh, differences and diversity. So I like that concept. I'm glad that Lon brought it to our attention about the need for men in particular to make a decision that diversity and inclusion is important before really being able to make significant progress in that space. And I really appreciate his challenge. And one thing you might notice, I mean, in prior episodes, I've talked a bit about the Mike Pence rule and navigating how do we mentor post Me Too uh, without men uh, feeling like they're being put at risk. And what I liked about this conversation with Lon is that it was a natural thing. Like he didn't seem to have to say, okay, how do I uh, approach this or, or, or should I just not even mentor women? That didn't even appear to come into his consciousness. It was just, okay, how can I make this comfortable for all of us? And I do think it comes down to his indicator of respect as, as a, a key component that it shouldn't be that hard. It should just be a matter of treating each other with respect and not treating men and women differently from the perspective of giving them opportunities for career growth. So, Lon, thank you for that and for your challenge. I hope our listeners take that on. I'd love to hear uh, any experiences that people have having taken on that challenge. You can uh, let me know by direct message on Twitter, Unraveling Pink or through our website, unravelingpink.com slash contact. Starting in a couple days, we will move to a daily posting again. So those of you who have been listening for six months or more will remember that in the month of November, I did a series of male ally moments every day, sharing a story of a woman who was helped by a man in some way in her career. I am now doing this just for the hell of it. Last time I did it for National Podcast Post Month. This time I decided for Women's Month, I wanted to celebrate women helping women. I am collecting stories of women who have had a positive experience with another woman helping her. If you have one, let me know. Uh, I'd love to share your story. So I will put on hold the Monday episodes until uh, April. Tune in starting March 1st for a daily series of Women Helping Women. If you're guys, please listen in because the stories are not just specific to women. I do want to celebrate the fact that there is a lot more of, of women helping women than I think we get credit for, 
but so far the stories I've heard are equally applicable to males and females for how they can advance women on their career paths. So please listen in, take the challenges, and let me know what you think. Together, we can unravel the pink bandana. 